William Chamberlain, and welcome to a new edition of Legends of Film. Today we have an interview with director Elliot Silverstein. Mr. Silverstein has directed such films as Cat Baloo, A Man Called Horse, and The Car. The Car will be showing at the Nashville Public Library on Saturday, October 6th at 2 p.m. in the main auditorium. Now on to the interview. You co-produced and directed The Car. What was your attraction to the story? It was a job. <laughs> Pure, plain, and simple. <laughs> the evil car was customized by George Barris. I'm curious, did you discuss or collaborate with Mr. Barris on what the design of the car should be? Yes, I did. Uh, I, I wanted it to look the way it did. I said I wanted it to look like an evil fullback with big shoulders and narrow windows. and uh, I don't want to see inside the windows. And he took it from there. We made one adjustment after he finished, and that was it. In doing research, I've read that Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, was a technical advisor on the movie. What was his responsibilities on the movie? No, he was not a technical advisor. Oh. Uh, he was a friend of a late friend of mine, Joe Hyams, who was a journalist. And after the movie was completed, or was in its final uh, editing phases, I thought, boy, I'd better do something to pump up the sense of uh, evil surrounding it. And Joe had mentioned to me that he knew Anton LaVey, and I said, maybe he could write a prologue for it, or we could take something out of his Devil's Bible. Joe called him, and the guy sold the company the rights to use that forward. This movie does have a cult following. I'm just curious, what's your opinion of the movie these many years later? Boy, that's a... <laughs> That's a rough question. It's not one of my favorites. And the reason goes to uh, some initial differences in aesthetic approach. Would you like to know what they were? Sure, yes, sir. All right. Originally, there was a driver in a car that killed people. And the company had just finished making Jaws. And in effect, they wanted Jaws on land. And I said, look, Jaws is a product of a creature that we don't know much about living in the deep, dark, mysterious part of its own world. There is a certain mystery about that. But to place this car in the bright light of our world in the desert where there is no real evil visible and there is nothing mysterious is a little tough because I won't really be able to do much with mood. And historically, in dramatic literature, God is in the desert. The devil is in the, in the dark city of, at night. And I didn't win that argument. So you'll notice in the movie, I tried to do various things. If I couldn't establish a mood, I tried to establish certain internal mysteries, like where did the car come from, that opening shot. Uh, out of the desert. Then there's a sequence where uh, the patrolman, the officer, James Brolin, confronts the car and it stands quietly and he approaches it and then the, the door is unlatched for a second. He stops and there's no recognition of who's inside. And he takes another step forward and the door slams forward and, the, and, the, and knocks him out and the, the car takes off. I had to do little things like that throughout in order to try to substitute for mystery, uh, the mystery of dark and devilish.
And so I, I'm not all that happy with the result. It does have a certain cult following. I'm aware of that. And it tends to break down into a series of violent scenes without much more to the narrative uh, in order to do Jaws on land. <laughs> so uh, I'm not damning it. Uh, I just, many years later, I, I have other favorites, other favorite films. That's still a child of mine in one sense. Okay. <laughs> I can't completely divorce myself from it. And we lost, in the course of it, we lost our producer, which is why I had to take up some of the reins. And we lost our art director, I believe I recall correctly. And so there were a lot of problems associated with organizing the material initially. You directed an episode of The Twilight Zone called The Obsolete Man, and it's a favorite of ours because the lead protagonist is a librarian. And you said there's a bit of history connected with the Directors Guild of America Creative Rights for American Film. Um, yes. You said there was a colorful story about that. Could you yes. tell us that story? Yes, I will indeed. That's one of my favorite television shows. That, uh, as you probably realize it's done in a kind of a German expressionist style at one point in a trial scene, kind of a Kafka-like mood. That was not in the script. The trial was, but the style was not. And when I set that up to have a course, I, I don't know if you remember the story, but a librarian was considered to be obsolete. <laughs> he was being tried by this nightmarish uh, court. And the courtroom was surrounded by black-shirted uh, people arranged in a semicircle around a long table at the end of which sat stood the librarian who was on trial and at the, the top of a very tall podium was the judge. Now, at the point when he was declared to be obsolete, I wanted that group to begin to move very slowly forward while making a kind of a strange growling sound, which would grow in intensity until they suddenly explode forward and attacked him, and God knows what they were doing to him as they, they all piled on. Now, the editor did not cut it the way I shot it. He didn't like the idea that they moved forward slowly. He wanted to move quickly to the end. He said, I don't think it works. And I said, I didn't ask you. I, I, I'm the director, and I want it done that way. Well, he wouldn't do it that way. So there was an argument which ensued between me and him, and then the management and the producer were called in, and a compromise was arranged, which still uh, still sickens me when I see it to this day. It doesn't quite work the way I wanted it to. But at any rate, I then went to the Directors Guild, and I said, why is this possible? I had just come from the East a year or so ago with a large number of other, at that time, young directors who had been doing live television and used to doing their own editing live live television editing. And so I was stunned to hear in film, which supposedly was the director's medium, blah, 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 that I couldn't have a sequence shot and edited the way I wanted it. So at that time, the secretary of uh, the Directors Guild, Joe Youngerman, said, well, you're going to have to look at the original agreement. And the original agreement said, between the drawn up by Frank Capra and the committee of uh, his compatriots, and the Producers Association said something very akin to the following, and I think I have to fairly close. The director shall view the first rough cut 
make any suggestions he has to the, for improvement to the associate producer. Well, when I read that, I was stunned because what was the rough cut? Who would make it so the director would view it? What, what did they mean that the director could make suggestions? And why was he making it only to the associate producer? Well, Joe said, you have to sit down and negotiate a change if you want to. So I called together, oh, maybe 20, somewhere between 15 and 20 of my colleagues. And we sat in a table at the Director's Guild for six months on Sunday mornings. And we drew up what we, what we called a, a Bill of Creative Rights, which began with the definition of the director and then the making of something called a director's cut. So there was no doubt as to who would make that first cut. It wasn't going to be a, a rough cut. The director wasn't going to view it. He was going to make it. And then he was not going to present any ideas for improvements. He was going to take that cut and show it not to the associate producer, but to the producer. And ultimately, that became defined in a contract as the person with the final artistic authority in the company. Well, that, that we, we formed a committee uh, chaired by Frank Capra, and we met with the, uh, with the uh, labor relations people from the companies, and they said, absolutely no, we will not give you the director's cut, because if a director has the right to make a cut, he could malinger, and uh, he could use it for all kinds of nefarious purposes, forcing us to grant him other rights, and so forth and so on, so no. So Frank said, excuse us. And we went outside, and he said, he said to all of us, boys, you have to show them how much you care. Those are his exact words. And this is the proposal that we made back in, when we went inside, that we would draw up a list of 12 of the top directors in the world, beginning with David Lean. And if the company, in its unilateral opinion, decided that a director in television or features was malingering or misbehaving or using, misusing the uh, authority he had to make the director's cut in any inappropriate way, the director's guild would fly in any one of those directors to finish that editing job at no expense to the companies. Well, there was a 30-second pause where the labor relations people absorbed what they had just heard. It was, it, it was an impossible thing for them to reject, and 15 minutes later they said, okay, we understand how much you care, we're going to give you the director's cut. And that began a 25-year journey into improving the rights of directors in making films, all kinds of technical things, which you can get if you're interested by writing to the Director's Guild and asking for their manual, including the creative rights provisions. They are extraordinary in the labor movement. They tell the companies what it can and cannot do. It can't even fire a director after 80% or 85% of the film has been made. They can't take away those rights. Director has to be consulted all the time, everywhere, whenever there's a discussion about the uh, cut that they view, etc., etc. I mean, all kinds of things uh, which are revolutionary in the labor movement. So that all began with the obsolete man and the argument that I had with an editor who did not want to cut the movie in the rather untraditional way in which I had planned it. Thinking with The Twilight Zone, you directed in all four episodes of The Twilight Zone, three of which were written by Rod Serling. Um, could, 
Could you talk about the collaboration process between you two? Well, that's very interesting because uh, my experience was the same as that with any director, I think, who worked on that show. It was brilliantly produced by uh, Buck Houghton, very well organized, rarely said no, providing you stood within the budget. Now, Rod Serling presented the script, and then he showed up to record his monologue. Apart from that, there was no contact. Going on to Route 66, you co-wrote the story and directed an episode of Route 66 called Birdcage on My Foot, and it dealt with drug addiction. What was yes. the attraction to that subject matter? A personal experience. I came out of my apartment in Midtown Manhattan and saw somebody fiddling with the door of my car, which is parked across the street, and I realized he was trying to break in. I said, what the hell are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just trying to make sure your car is all right. And he started to wander away. And I said, no, no, come back here. And he started to run. I started to run. We ran two blocks. I was determined to catch the SOB. And we ran down into a subway station along a platform. And I realized that we were being, in turn, chased by two other guys. Now, I didn't know who they were until I caught up with the guy who was breaking into the car. And I realized these two guys behind me were New York City detectives who had seen me chasing him and thought they'd better get in on the, the adventure, whatever it was. And they caught up with this guy, who then, uh, under immediate questioning by the detectives, admitted that he was under dope, but pleaded to be let go, that he had a wife and kids. He pulled out his wallet and showed us the pictures of that. And I was very moved by the sincerity of his appeal. And I said to the detectives, I said, isn't there any way that we can make some kind of a deal. He said, well, no, the guy tried to break into your car, and he admits he's a dope addict. I said, I'll tell you what, wait a minute. I said to this fellow, will you admit yourself into Le Lexington, which is the federal dope addiction center in the country, that point, Lexington, Kentucky, I think it was. I said, will you admit yourself to that if they let you go? And he said that he would. And the detectives were somewhat uh, doubtful. They were skeptical. And I said, look, it's, it's late, it's night now, it's about 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. I said, let's get a hotel room. Will you guys stay with him till morning and take him down to the federal courthouse to admit him? And they said, you know, that's an interesting proposition. We'll try that. And they did. They took him to the Claridge Hotel. They got a room. They paid for the room. Just uh, so curious to see whether this would work out. They sat with this guy all night. They took him down to the admitting office. And, in fact, he did go to the uh, drug addiction center. And out of that came this television movie that you're, you've referred to. One of the things about that is Robert Duvall was playing the drug addict in the show, and I was just curious, how did you come to cast him? I mean, this was even before To Kill a Mockingbird. Sure, yes. Well, he was a very good actor. I mean, you know, uh, we, we know actors sometimes before the general public make stars of them. Well, continuing on that, when I look at, like, Route 66 and Naked City, I, I mean, I'm just blown away by the young talent you had on these shows. I mean, you personally directed Martin Sheen, yeah. James Caan, Peter Fonda, Ed Asner, Robert Redford, yeah. Dennis Hopper. I know you didn't have a crystal ball, but <laughs> was there a particular eye of talent for these shows? Well, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I, I, I think I can spot talent before it completely blossoms. I, I found Faye Dunaway to make her first movie, and Peter Fonda, I think, to make a first appearance in television. And uh, I think 
I think that was either his first or his second acting job in, in uh, films. Uh, who were some of the others? Well, um, you said Robert Redford was one. Oh, Red, oh Redford, no. Redford was was cast by uh, the company, and he didn't want to play that role. He said, oh, I just came off playing a role like that. I said, Bob, I can't be responsible for your career decisions. We're here to make this movie not to service your career. That will be a secondary benefit. And so he agreed to continue. And that's all I remember about him. He was quite good and quite gifted, and it was very clear that he was going places. On Route 66, is you actually went to the locations, like you went to Boston, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Carlsbad Cavern, and at that time, what were the problems of going to a location and filming? Well, that was a marvelously produced series because the producer, Bert Leonard, hired a crew that stayed together and were very, very experienced. So they would travel as a group to whatever location was chosen. And that they were preceded by Sterling Silifant, who wrote most of those, who initially researched the location or chose the location so that everything was fairly well, fairly well planned out. When, as a director, you arrived there, you had certain tactical choices to make even though the, the large strategic ones had already been chosen. You also directed an episode of Have Gun Will Travel called The Kid, and it was produced yes. by Frank Pearson. And That's right. It was a humorous episode of that show, and I'm curious, did that lead you to directing Cat Baloo? Yes, sir, it did, and you're very sharp to have picked up these little details. There was a scene at the beginning of that where Richard Boone was giving a little kid a bath in a tub, and CBS sent a, oh, I think it was CBS, whatever network it was, sent one of their memos down to be sure that there was no nudity, that the child was not shown nude. Well, that, I'm a kind of a contrarian, and I said, I've got to beat these people at their own game somehow. So what I did was, after he finished uh, washing the little kid, he wrapped a towel around him, and the kid broke away and ran down the street. Well, I put a camera up very high, about two stories high on a wide lens, saw the kid far below running down the street, and then saw the towel drop off. But you couldn't see, of course, anything very much. And that passed muster with the network. And Frank Pearson, who died yesterday, by the way, unfortunately, was the story editor, I think, or associate producer or something, and was very amused by that. And he had been approached by the producers of Cat Baloo to do a rewrite of what was a kind of a semi-serious piece about a girl's revenge in the West. And they wanted to make a satire of it, and he suggested that they talk to me. Well, I had no film credit, so they, had, they spoke to about 15 other directors, and then my turn came up. And I called, and Frank called me and told me that, you know, this was going to was going to happen. And I said, well, I don't know these people. And he said, well, I can, what do you want to know? I said, meet me at, on the Santa Monica Pier. The Santa Monica Pier is a pier that juts out on the Pacific Ocean from Santa Monica. And it has an amusement park section and so forth, right on the pier, restaurants and so forth. So we met at around 11.30. 
died after he'd finished certain work he had to do. And we conspired as to what our position would be on certain aspects of the script. And he told me a bit about the producers and his experience with them so far. And we thought it would comfort the producers if they knew that they had a writer and a director who would general, in general, if not specific agreement on the uh, approach to the material. And that is, in fact, what happened. When I went in the next day to meet with them, they asked me questions, none of which had been covered by Frank and me, but I was able to generally respond in a way that harmonized with things that Frank had been talking to them about. Uh, Devilish people we were <laughs> to, get, to get a job, which you have to go through. Yeah. Lee Marvin, Clint and I are big Lee Marvin fans, and of course he won the Academy Award for Cat Ballou. And just right. curious, how'd you come to cast him? Very interesting question also. Well, you really are, you've got a radar for this stuff. <laughs> the man who was in charge of Columbia, his name was Mike Frankovich, had just come over from governing European production for Columbia Pictures, and he had just taken the seat as the production head of Columbia in the United States. And Harold Hecht had just made a film, a completed film called Paris, Paris Bulba, which was not entirely successful in his judgment or in the judgment of the box office. So everybody was a little nervous there. And Harold wanted some assurance that the film would be successful, and he wanted someone that his partner, Bert Lancaster, knew very well, and that's Kirk Douglas. Uh, so there was a big meeting. Uh, everybody was sitting around in, in Frankovich's office, and I said, well, all right, let's get Kirk Douglas. Elliot, will you talk to him? I didn't want a star because I knew in, uh, what I was going to ask the star to do, that's to do everything but pratfalls. And the higher people get up on the celebrity ladder, the less comfortable they feel about taking risks with their image. So I, 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 I didn't quite know what to do. It was my first movie, and it was going to be a big star attached to it, and I didn't know whether I could ask him to execute the kinds of things I wanted to be able to do. But orders were orders, so I went to the phone, and I, I called Kirk Douglas. And he had read the script and liked it, but he said, you know, it, the exact quote was, it's not big enough for a star part or small enough for a cameo. So I'll have to say no. And I, I, being the dutiful soldier, I said, well, maybe we could expand it a bit. He said, no, no. The nature of the thing is that the girl is a star. I said, okay. And I walked in feeling very good inside. I'd done everything I could do, but he said no. So then all the people in the room were sitting around depressed. We had no star. And I waited until somebody asked the question. Well, Elliot, do you have any ideas? And I said, yes, I do. Who? Oh. I said, you all see the wild ones? Yes, they'd all seen The Wild Ones. That was the Marlon Brando movie. I said, there's a man that gets off a motorcycle in that movie that gets off in a way that signals to me that he's the guy to play Kid Shaleen. Who was that? Lee Marvin. Well, it was a, a stunner because Lee Marvin had played cops, uh, tough guys, so forth and so on. That's why I thought he would be right for this. Well, Frankovich, who was very much supportive of directors, said, give it, let's give it a shot. So the script was sent to Lee Marvin and went crazy about it and went around at parties quoting lines from it, and uh, he did it. But then there's, there's another very interesting moment that occurred after that. Do you have time for me to tell you? Oh, yes, sir. We started two weeks of rehearsal, and rehearsal for film is, is very dangerous because you can the actor can give every 
everything in a rehearsal if the director's calling for it, and then there won't be any surprises left when the camera turns. So most directors will just do very basic things like staging, talking through the character. If you've got faith in the actor, you know when time comes, he's a professional. He'll take all those things in mind, to his mind, and then come out with something. If you don't like it, you may take two, take three, take four, take ten if you have to. So I did that with Lee. I wasn't asking for very much, just, you know, we kind of talked about things and blah, 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 blah. And then Harold was watching a rehearsal and called me aside and said, I want to talk to you. And we went up to the office and he said, he's not doing anything. I said, I don't want him to do anything. Well, then how do you know he's going to do anything when, on the set? I said, that's my job to know, Harold. He said, I don't, I've got to see something. I, I'm feeling very insecure about it. I said, well, all right. You know, the argument was more heated than I've described but, and more nervous than I've described, but that was the sum, the sum of it. So we went back down again, and Harold sat on one side of the, the room waiting for magic to occur. And I talked to Lee, and Lee said, uh, what's going on? Something's going on. I said, yeah, yeah, he's a little nervous. What's he nervous about? Lee, he thinks we're not doing anything. Will you do something for me? Yeah, what do you want me to do? Just do something. I don't care what you do. I don't care if it's relevant or isn't. Just do some spasms. Cough, sneeze, do something. And he seemed nonplussed by that, but he said, yeah, all right, I know what you mean. And he did little things. Nothing much, nothing that ever appeared in the final version of this, nor were they appropriate things. Then Harold said, come back up to my office. He said, no, no, it's no good. He's not going to be able to play the part. And I said, what do you mean? He's going to be very, very good. No, no. I said, Harold, we're supposed to leave for Canyon City tomorrow morning. How are you going to leave without leave? And he said, well, I've got to replace him. I said, who are you going to replace him? He said, Jose Ferrer. I said, Jose Ferrer is a very great actor, but he doesn't really have the kind of odd Western touch that necessary in order. I think he'd have this comedic angle that I'm anxious to play. He said, no, no, we're going to do it. And I said, Harold, let me tell you something. And I realized that I had the only answer to this in my mind, and it was a big risk. Oh, he said, this is going to be my last movie. This could be my last movie, because he was concerned about the success of his previous one, or the lack of it. And I said, all right, Harold, let me, let me be blunt with you. If we don't leave tomorrow morning with Lee Marvin playing that role, I'm quitting. And if I quit, Mike Frankovich is not going to let this picture go forward because of the record of the Pat of Taras Bulba. And because I'm a first-time director, he will realize that this film is out of control before it even goes to location. So I'm going to walk off unless you just hang in with, with Lee. He said, you wouldn't do that. I said, yes, I would. And he said, oh, you feel that strongly about it? I said, yes, I do. And then we went, uh, he said, okay, 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 biting his nails. And we went to location. And the first scene in the location that he had to play was when he tried to shoot the side of a barn door. And he couldn't do it. As that the character couldn't shoot the side of the barn door. And uh, I made about four or five takes. And Harold, who was sitting on the edge of the set, was very nervous, called me over, which is something a producer normally doesn't do in full view of the cast because the cast is going to think the producer's unhappy with them. So I, I went over and I said, well, Yes, Harold, what is it? He said, he's, he's fine, he's fine, he's just fine. Just print it, print it. We're running out of time. I said, it's only take five, Harold, and I haven't got it yet. He said, you got to get it. Well, this kind of thing went on for another couple of takes, and I saw Lee was getting a little nervous because each time he'd make a take, 
Harold would call me over. And finally, I have to say to him on take seven, all right, Harold, I'll make one more, and I'll either print that one or one of the first eight, either that take eight or, or the previous seven. He said, you promise? I said, yeah, okay. So I walked back to Lee, who was standing over by the barn, wondering what I could say to him that would get the performance that I had in mind. Then it hit me, and he, I walked up to him. He said, what's the matter? What's the matter? What's going on? He said, what's, what's he nervous about? I said, ah, producers, produceritis is what I said. Uh, and a uh, 
newspaper for the discovery of Welsh Indians. There was a rumor that there were blue-eyed Indians in the West, so there was a reward offered for the discovery of that particular tribe, who was supposed to be Welshmen that had come across and intermarried with the Native Americans. This was with regard to that central ceremony. And George Kaplan had painted that ceremony and mentioned in Okipa, which was the Mandan Indian name for the ceremony, uh, that he came across an encampment of the Mandan Sioux near just north of the confluence of the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers. And there were French trappers there who had befriended the Indians and whom the Indians trusted. And Kaplan made a deal with the Frenchmen and the Frenchmen went to the elders of the tribe and re obtained permission for Catlin to witness that ceremony. He did, he painted it, and those paintings are now in the Library of Congress. And I researched them, saw the paintings, and said, by God, I've got to have this. So we changed the approach from Crow Indians to Mandan or to Sioux, Mandans were a Suian tribe, according to our historian. And the presentation that you see in that movie is as precise as we can get it, according to the paintings, except that it was understated, because in the original ritual, not only was the man hung up by bone claws placed in his uh, chest muscle and, and hoisted him up, and was hoisted up by that, Everything belonging to that man was hung from his thighs from additional piercings, plus buffalo skulls, plus God knows what, bows and arrows to add to the weight and the pain. Now, I insisted before starting shooting the entire picture that we have a, an ethnologist or a historian to guide me through this because I wanted it to be as accurate a picture as, as I could offer. And so a man named Clyde Dollar, who worked for the Department of, I think the Department of the Interior, who was a historian of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, became our resident expert. And I gave him veritable veto power over details. And the only detail that met with challenges from later scholars was Richard Harris's wig. And there's a story there. He... Would you like to hear it? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Oh, we don't want to take up too much of your time. Sure, right. <laughs> I mean, we'll wait later for this. Uh, <laughs> you're asking such accurate questions and clearly revealing that you prepared yourself that I want to show respect to that by giving as much information as I can. Appreciate uh, that. Harris was not an easy man to get along with. He's a brilliant actor, but very, very tough on his director. And we were about two weeks into the movie when his first scene had come about. Now, the first scene was going to be his character on a horse riding down a hill. Now, I had done some research on him and knew that he was not comfortable riding a horse and also knew that he had just was being sued or was about to be sued or was involved in some kind of suit uh, for a, in a Spanish production because of some disagreement between him and the producers. Now, my experience with actors is that they all say they can ride horses until the time comes when they have to get up on one, then suddenly, oh, they're not comfortable with this, that, all kinds of excuses, and it turns out that most of them can't ride. So 
I anticipated this might be happening. Uh, now, I knew that I had to show Harris that I was going to be in control of the film. And so I scheduled Riding Down the Hill as the first scene. It was a wicked thing to do, but I did it. I wanted to establish that I was going to direct the movie and not him. So when that time came, everybody was ready. The horse had been taken up and down the hill and knew what his role was to be. And then Richard came up to me with this box. I had not seen this wig before. And he said, I think I should wear this wig. And he put it on. I said, Richard, you look like Veronica Lake. And she was an actress of the 30s and 40s who wore a long blonde hair over one eye. And he said, no, I think I should wear it. I said, no, you can't do that. You should have come to me weeks ago with this. We should have made some tests and see what it looks like and so forth. He said, no, I've got to wear it. And, I, and, I, I, and while we're here, I want to talk about the end of the movie. I said, what do you mean? He said, I want, to, I want to stay with the Indians and become the chief. Well, that's a bombshell. And I realized that he was doing this to avoid getting on that horse and coming down the hill. This was a big stall. So the test that I anticipated uh, was now in motion. Who was going to run the show? Is he going to wear the wig? And is he going to change the end of the movie? So I, I said, well, this is not something I'm going to solve with you right here and now. We have to talk to the producer. So I called lunch, and we all, I went back to my trailer, and uh, then I, uh, and Harris went back to his, and then I went over to Sandy Howard. He was the producer, the next trailer over, and poor Sandy was very sick with uh, Teresa's, and I said, uh, told him what had happened, and he almost died. I said, come back with me to my trailer, and whatever I say, support me. Later you can fire me if you want, but you've got to support me in that meeting, or you'll be in big trouble with, with the production. He said, what are you going to say? I said, you'll find out when I get there. So he got there, he sat next to me. Harris came over and sat opposite the little table in the trailer, and I said, all right, we've got two problems. One is the wig. And Sandy said, oh, let him wear the wig. Please let him wear the wig. I said, all right, okay, we'll figure out some way to wear the wig. I said, but the bigger problem now is something that Richard wants to do. Richard, I think you'd better tell Sandy on your own just what you feel. And he said he wanted to stay with the Indians, become their chief at the very end, which would have changed the entire movie because the whole story was to be a man who learned to have respect for these native people and then returned to his own people with a, with a greater understanding of Native Americans that he had not had previously. Now he just wanted to join them. Well, Richard finished saying this, and Sandy turned to me very pale as a ghost. I remember said, is, 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 is that the issue, Elliot? I said, no. And they both looked very strange. They said, well, what's the issue? I said, the issue, Richard, is that you get on the horse and you, get, you ride down that damned hill. That's the next shot. That's the issue. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, what about the end of the war? I said, you approved this script. CBS approved the script. They got a lot of money on it. You came down here knowing that this was the script. Now you're trying to change it uh, in the middle of production. It will not happen, Richard. He said, no, you, you don't talk to me. I said, Richard, you either get on the horse or I'm going back out to Durango and I'm going to call CBS and tell them that you're refusing to work. And I kept in mind this business that had just come off the Spanish production with a difficulty, as far as I knew. He said, you wouldn't do that. I said, I will. I'm counting to ten, Richard, to help me, and at ten I'm walking out the door of that trailer. And I got up, and I was counting, and as I walked toward the door, I said, my whole career is going down the flue. I know it right now. Well, who's going to crack first? <laughs> and I reached the door, and he said, oh, wait, 
you don't have to do that. I said, what is it I don't have to do? She said, you don't have to behave that way. I said, Richard, are you going to be on the horse? He said, all right, I'll be on the damn horse. I said, all right, the meeting is over. And I walked out, <laughs> and he got on the horse, and he, you know, he held on for dear life, but the shot was wide enough so you couldn't really see that he wasn't expert. I was watching an episode of the Craft Suspense Theater on YouTube that you directed called Are There Any More Out There Like You? And it starred Robert Ryan, and I'm just a huge fan of his, and I'm just curious what was the working collaboration like between you two. Frankly, I don't remember much about that film, but I do remember that Robert Ryan was a real gentleman and a real professional. Okay. I remember that. I, I don't remember any anything else about it. I'm sorry. That's fine. Um, also, in 1974, you directed a movie called Nightmare Honeymoon, and you took over for Nicholas Rogue only after five days of filming. What are the challenges for you as a director when you come in and take over for another director? Did I take over from somebody? That's that's what I was doing in my research. I read that. It said Nicholas Rogue was the original director. Well, it may, may have, maybe he was associated with it someplace along the line. That was uh, uh, was not a... Another one, uh, I, I guess I've got a couple of movies I wish I could <laughs> <laughs> You keep bringing them up to me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't know what happened to that movie because it was taken over by the company. Uh, I didn't do a very good job on it, and uh, it wasn't a very good concept to start with, and I didn't help it any, I'm afraid. And it was taken over by the company. I don't remember what the original title was, but it was not Nightmare Honeymoon. Uh, so somewhere it's in the dustbin of collected straight to video films. Before I ask this question, I want to say thank you. Um, in the 1980s, you spearheaded a movement to stop Ted Turner from colorizing movies, and it appears to be successful. Um, how were you able to achieve this goal? Yes, 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 I was. Well, there was a company in Marina del Rey who was founded by friends of mine and friends of a number of directors. I think was, I've forgotten the name of it now, but they were going to be colorizing movies. Well, I called him and he said, what's the big deal? You know, it's not such a big problem. People, the younger generation don't want to watch black and white. Uh, they want to watch color. But, you know, and I raised all the arguments with, you're probably familiar uh, with about the uh, movies are, 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 in a sense, a, a cultural history. Uh, and uh, I didn't think they should be touched or changed. But they wouldn't budge. And then we started a PR campaign, and their stock dropped through the floor. And they just went out of business after a while. But that wasn't the most dramatic story of the colorization history. There was a one about uh, with Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. Uh, did your research turn that up? Uh, no, sir. I'd be uh, interested well, to hear it. Okay. Well, th there was a plan to colorize Citizen Kane. Well, that sent us around the bend, really, because this was a real classic of American film. And uh, we had already met kind of fierce resistance to any more uh, toying with industrial practice. 
figure a way of bluffing. And so I think Orswell had died at that time. Or if he had not died, he was out of touch. I can't really remember, frankly. But I gave an interview representing the committee which I chaired. And we knew that Orson Welles' papers were with a Midwestern museum, and nobody had been able to find any contract that gave him the right to prevent colorization or any, anything. But I gave an interview, and I faked. I said, well, there's a clause in his contract which will make those that are going to colorize the film wish they hadn't done it. Quote, well, that's not a direct quote, but that was the sense of it. And when that came out, I'm sure the lawyers on the other side, my God, they know something we don't know. Oh, if that's right, we're in for big trouble. Why don't we just lay off? So they didn't colorize Citizen Kane after that. Uh, poker, poker. Poker, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would like to thank Elliot Silverstein for granting us the interview. So come see his film The Car on Saturday, October 6th at 2 p.m. in the main auditorium at the Nashville Public Library located at 615 Church Street. It's free. And today's music is Route 66 by Nelson Riddle.